0: This is the English Heritage Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we go back in time to perhaps the most famous
2: date in English history 1066. William the Conqueror's chaplain said it was a very strange kind of battle. The Saxons at the top of the hill all rooted to the spot while the Normans are rushing around below them and then coming up the hill to break upon the Saxon shield ball like waves upon a shore. We'll hear how English Heritage prepares for a Battle of Hastings
1: reenactment.
0: It attracts anywhere up to a thousand reenactors, so it's the biggest kind of gathering that we have at any of our properties. So it's pretty big in the scale of what we do.
1: And we'll tell you when you can see this historic event being recreated. More from reenactor Nigel Amos and events manager Diana Evans in a few moments. But before that, here's what future histories will be covering soon on the English Heritage Podcast. We hope that people who are interested in taking selfies maybe will come to Kenwood for the first time. We've never done anything quite like this before or with the Rembrandt at Kenwood, so, yeah, it's going to be very exciting. If you want to get to the core of Wellington's collection, this room tells you a lot, with lots of Spanish, Dutch, Italian, Flemish, French art. This is a true collector's house. And there are new episodes every Thursday, so make sure you subscribe to stay up to date. Now today, you join us in the southeast of England, scene of one of the most pivotal battles in English history. The Battle of Hastings in 1066 signalled the end of Anglo-Saxon rule and the start of a massive Norman power grab. It all stemmed from a dispute over who was going to rule England after the death of the previous king, Edward the Confessor. English sources claim Edward, in his dying moments, had promised the throne to Harold, Earl of Wessex. But Norman sources claim he'd actually chosen William of Normandy 15 years beforehand. A fight to the death was the only way to decide. The winner, of course, was William the Conqueror. And Battle Abbey, this vast building which I'm standing in now, was built by him to attest to that epic encounter. So how do you recreate one of the biggest battles in English history?
0: Diana Evans, Events Manager for English Heritage in the South.
1: So the Battle of Hastings is a pretty big event in history but also in terms of reenactments for English Heritage and your job as events manager is very much about the visitor experience. How popular is the Battle of Hastings as an event for reenactments when people come down to watch one?
0: Well it's the largest event that English Heritage stages in the calendar and it attracts thousands and thousands of people so anywhere up to 10 or 15,000 people depending on uh, what year it is they're more popular on a anniversary year and in October it's sort of towards the end of the reenactment season so it's a really nice end point for them in their calendars and then for the public I think it attracts lots and lots of people because it is such a momentous point in history.
1: There are lots of things to see on site obviously and as we stand outside this building what is this?
0: The dormitory range. Part of the abbey William the Conqueror set up after the battle to mark the spot where he had his victory.
1: Well let's step inside we'll continue our chat. We we'll get a bit of atmosphere inside here. A very big room, but how big is the Battle of Hastings in terms of a reenactment compared with all the other reenactments that English Heritage puts on?
0: It attracts anywhere up to a thousand reenactors. So it's the biggest kind of gathering that we have at any of our properties. So it's pretty big in the scale of what we do.
1: That sounds like almost like a mini film set, uh, you know. You've got these reenactors, you've got visitors. How does everyone get fed and watered?
0: Well, the reenactors will camp in either the authentic living history encampments or in the backstage, if you like, plastic campsite. And so people are welcome to bring all of their kind of cooking kit and food and supplies. But we also lay on catering vans. We also have to make sure that we've got all the relevant amounts of facilities, so portaloos, water bowsers, all that sort of thing, all in place ready for their arrival.
1: And how do you organise parking for all these different people? Because obviously I've arrived today and there's a fairly decent sized car park for a quiet Tuesday, but where do you put everyone when you've got a big reenactment on?
0: Well, fortunately, we own um, quite a large piece of land in this area that's connected to the battlefield. So, where we have kind of additional farming fields, etc., we utilise that for the public parking and for the reenactors on the weekend. So, we're fortunate enough to have the space.
1: Let's head outside again, and I'll ask you another question, which is: you have to prepare a lot for events like this. How? long does the actual planning for a yearly Battle of Hastings reenactment take?
0: Well, it's in constant planning, really, because we do do it every year. So we're looking ahead to the, the next year's event, but always in the context of the following years and onwards. But yes, it takes all year to plan it. We get in touch with all the people we want to be involved with it at least a year in advance. We're always trying to think of ideas, you know, how we can improve it, how we can bring in kind of new elements and takes takes all year and when we get round it comes around very very quickly it's always a joy for the all that hard work to sort of come into fruition and uh, it's always brilliant when we get out here on the field every october
1: you do lots of events obviously in your career but um how does it rank i suppose it's one of the biggest dates in english history is it also one of your favorite events
0: yes it absolutely is and i'm not just saying that (laughs) it really is my favorite
1: next it's time for me to meet one of the people whose job is to portray one of the most pivotal conflicts
2: in English history. Hello, I'm Nigel Amos. I'm a trained horseman. I'm a professional reenactor with a speciality in this period. I've worked with English Heritage a number of times on historical documentaries and I lead a section of the cavalry at the Battle of Hastings. Well, thanks for
1: bringing me to the spot where it all happened. We are standing at the top of the hill outside Battle Abbey,
2: where Harold would have
1: had the view down the hill to William's advancing forces. And from this vantage point and on such a big site, can you describe to me how you rally your troops on a smaller scale?
2: That's a very good question. Even on a small scale, and we are, with, um, when we put something like a 1,000 troops on this field, we are really acting at what may be a one twentieth scale of the original thing. It takes some time just to get the armies onto the field and prepare for battle. And of course with that, not just the infantry, but for the Norman side, we have a number of horses as well. So they need to be prepared and ready. And actually this needs to be done fairly smoothly and quickly because we wouldn't want the horses stood around for a long time with armoured soldiers on their backs.
1: Isn't that also one of the key differences between the Normans and the Saxons on that day? That the Normans had the sort of
2: horse advantage, is that true? It is true. There's a bit of a myth that the Saxons never fought on horseback. They did when the occasion demanded or when it suited them, but generally they fought on foot in the shield wall. In fact, the same is true of the Normans. But what William the Conqueror does is essentially he recreates the old Roman military model by using a combination of heavy infantry, archers and horsemen.
1: And when does the battle actually start in terms of your reenactment and also when does it start in 1066?
2: Well, our reenactment starts um, in the afternoon at about three o'clock, and it lasts for an hour, which is long enough for us. The actual battle was grueling. As far as we know, it began around nine a.m. and continued until well after dusk, so it was a very, very long-drawn-out affair. The Normans, particularly, you know, having to move up the hill, always fighting uphill at the Saxons, who are you know stood there in this very, very strong shield wall formation. And that's the
1: sense that we get here. We've definitely got the high ground here, as Saxons as the English. And we think we've got the advantage. You've played King Harold, but you've also played William, I believe. Who are you going to be playing
2: this time? What I'll be doing is commanding one half of the Norman cavalry and really looking after both uh, the safety of the horses, the guys on them, and, um, crucially, the people on the ground as well, who they'll be facing.
1: So you're on horseback?
2: Yep. And you're marshalling
1: various numbers of cavalry how how many have you got on horseback with you?
2: Um, On an event like this year we'll probably have between 20 and 30 cavalry so I'll probably have a team of between 10 and 15.
1: Now we look down the hill here now whereabouts would you be in this massive field?
2: Directly ahead of us is a uh, copse of trees and to the left of that copse of trees is where the cavalry will be stationed as their kind of mustering point. Now, we will attack the Saxons in waves. So first there'll be an infantry attack, then there'll be an attack by archers, and then the cavalry will come in. Okay. So um, we will then move up the hill over this ridge, you can't quite see it from here, but there's a bit of a bumpy ridge. It does
1: just sort slightly like it disappeared, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah,
2: and as we come over that ridge, we'll hit the charge and we'll come steaming up the hill towards the Saxons. How
1: much speed can you get up then on horseback? Because that's a bit of a climb, isn't it? You've got to admit. I mean, that's, that would have been a tough climb for anyone on foot as well.
2: Yeah, I've galloped up here, actually. It's, you know, funny enough, there is, a, again, another myth is that it's difficult for the horses going uphill. But actually, the horses prefer going uphill. It works better for them. Ah. So um, although they will tire themselves out, a well-trained horse will get quite a speed up. And I've, certainly, I've galloped up this field towards um, rather worried-looking Saxons before now. When I started as a reenactor I was very pro Saxon as an Englishman I had this inherited this view that the Saxons were the good guys and the Normans were the bad guys but actually since I started riding and learning more about the Normans my attitude towards them has mellowed a bit and um, and I find a lot to admire about them
1: What's the atmosphere like on the day then can you describe the pomp and the ceremony
2: and and where do you arrive in this sort of vista From our point of view as a cavalry there's a very very positive attitude amongst the Normans primarily because we know we're going to win. <laughs> but, um, and it is unusual, you see. There aren't many battle reenactments where we do script it to the point of, that we do the Battle of Hastings. So the Norman troops are usually very buoyant, and there is a great deal at the start of the battle of parading the papal banner, letting the Norman troops know that essentially God is with them in this crusade against the English and so on. So the, the Norman troops always appear very buoyant. The Saxon guys get very into character as being generally angry and they do that very well.
1: And they basically just stick to the spot and
2: create that shield wall, don't they? That's basically their main tactic. They do. William the Conqueror's chaplain, a guy called William of Jumies, described the battle very shortly afterwards and he said it was a very strange kind of battle. The Saxons at the top of the hill were all rooted to the spot while the Normans are rushing around below them and then coming up the hill to break upon the Saxon shield wall like waves upon a shore. And that is something that I think the crowd really get a view of when they come to the Battle of Hastings. They see the stalwart stoicism of these Saxons who are standing there taking this pounding, but the mobility of the Normans coming again and again and again up that hill, determined to get their victory.
1: It's been commented, I think, by historians that the Saxons were tired from the Battle of Stamford Bridge. So that maybe is a reason why they are just holding the fort, so to speak.
2: Well, English Heritage and myself um, actually recreated the march down from York a couple of years ago, and pretty much poo-pooed that notion. For one thing, the Saxons would have left behind the foot troops from Stamford Bridge because they would have slowed them down, or at least told them to just follow behind. The majority of the Saxon troops would have been mounted, and they moved down south. We also know that a great deal of the Saxon army was still in the south, so they actually never went to the Battle of Stamford Bridge at all. Harold's brother was not at the Battle of Stamford Bridge; he had an army in East Anglia. Hmm. So there's a good deal. Too to dispute the idea that the Saxon army was in any way exhausted when they arrived at the Battle of Hastings. Interesting. Well, that's another
1: fact that I've learnt today. Let's go through some of the gear that you're wearing. We've talked about your horse, but you do have some equipment lying out in front of us, some weaponry. Can you take us through what you'll be wearing on the day? Starting left
2: to right here with this well, very nice shield. Well, I'll be nice wearing, shield. Um, this shield now, This uh, what we call a kite shield. And a lot of people, again, see this as a Norman shield particularly. It's not. It's just the state of the art for a shield in the 11th century. The Saxon huscarls also used a long kite-shaped shield that curves around the body and protects the lower leg. It's particularly good on horseback because it sits well against my body on my left side when I'm riding my horse, and it's very controllable and very comfortable. And, as I say, it protects my lower leg, which is a problem for a horseman more than perhaps it is for an infantryman.
1: And we've got um, an insignia there. What what is that that we're looking
2: at? It's a sort of a dragon insignia, and we see this all over the Bayeux Tapestry, that there there are various types of of animals that are shown on the shields of the Normans and the Saxons alike. and, And animal pictures were particularly iconic for them just as the early Saxons used the boar on the top of their helmets they um, seem to start to adopt dragons particularly as uh, symbols of warfare To the right of course we've got your sword, what, three foot? Something like that? Yeah it's around three foot The, um, The sword is becoming in the 11th century a much less expensive weapon and it's becoming less flashy than the older swords of the Viking age It's becoming a tool of the job really So you see it's got a simple disc pommel, a round-shaped pommel with very little adornment on it, which is very typical of the 11th century. It's also got a slightly wider crossguard, which tells us that the swords are becoming so common that you're more likely to meet another sword in combat, blade on blade. So we start to see perhaps the beginnings of fencing with swords in the 11th century. Can we unsheath it as well? Yes, we certainly can. Now, um, this is a a reenactment sword so it hasn't got a sharp edge this is exactly what we would use on the field okay it's got a two millimeter edge so um it's uh, not going to cut flesh and as you see it doesn't have a sharp point yes circular. Um, beyond edge. that it's the same about the same weight as a period sword it's a um, piece of sprung steel that's three foot long and if it's used incorrectly it will cause serious injury is it quite heavy it's quite heavy it's about three and a half pounds
1: Let's see if i can grab it with my left hand here oh wow Yeah, my left hand is not my strongest. Um, I'm I'm right-handed, so... Yeah, that is pretty heavy, and you've got to control a horse as well. Yes. There's a certain amount of centre of gravity on that, sort of weighing it down. So so you've got to be pretty fit, really. You've got to have good upper body strength, uh, good lower leg
2: strength as well. You do, yeah, no matter what you're doing. I think it's no accident that the poetry, particularly of the Saxons at the time talks far more about stamina than it does about fighting skill it's more about can you keep going can you keep fighting can you keep swinging these heavy swords mm-hmm. so um, it is it's, it's a period when you know, really you are arming and defending yourself with good stout shields hopefully with some armor and good weaponry and just standing there and taking a, a pounding while you hopefully deal one out as well And in the battle
1: itself in 1066, are we also having to deal with distressed animals which are also tired? Because they are in, I suppose, quite a tense situation, aren't they?
2: Absolutely. We know that, as I say, the battle lasted all day, so that's going to wear those horses out going up and down all the time. We know that William... It's supposed to have had three horses cut from underneath him. So that tells us two things. One, that William is leading the charge. He's getting stuck in there with the rest of the boys. But also it tells us that there's a heavy toll that being taken on those animals.
1: He had to re-horse three times, basically.
2: Yes, he did, yeah.
1: That's something I've not also realised until today. You've also got a helmet, which is just sitting
2: on that bag there. Yes, this is the, the helmet I will wear in a battle. It's a classic 11th century, what we would call a Okay. of a ridged construction. Four panels of um, steel held together, by metal ridges and, and riveted together and it's very very looks heavy. strong helmet it's conical in shape which will help to deflect blows away from it and also has typically this nose guard, nose guard this guard, nasal yeah. across the front so it's a very iconic 11th century helmet there that you'd find on Viking Saxons and Normans alike so
1: pretty authentic really
2: mind if I knock it you're not gonna hurt it
1: okay <laughs> No, and no one's underneath it so that's fine but um that's proper steel
2: well, yeah, let's uh, test that, shall we? I'll strike it with a sword. OK. It's a little scratch, but yeah, not a big deal.
1: In the actual battle, I presume swords, blunt as they are, are
2: clashing with headgear. Swords, axes, and most notably, actually, the principal weapon of the uh, battlefield is the spear. For everybody, it's the most important one. It can be thrown, it can be used for fighting. The pointed spear can perhaps cause more wounds than a sword can because if you're up against with someone who's wearing mail, um, although the sword can crush bones and crush muscles, it's very unlikely to actually cut through the mail, whereas a spear, a heavy spear, with a good deal of body weight behind it could actually potentially penetrate mail and, and kill somebody. So the majority of troops in this battle on both sides are mostly concerned with fighting with spears for much of the day.
1: So that's most of the gear that you carry and wear, but one of the most important things that you need to protect yourself is the chain mail. And I can see you now emptying out your bag, and you can probably tell from the sounds.
2: Here comes... You're the mailman now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you've got mail. <laughs> so this is um, a classic, again, of the 11th century, the hauberk. And uh, this is what the Normans called their mail shirts, a long mail shirt, with an integral hood, which is built in, which is probably where the word hoburg comes from. The Normans being descended from Norwegian Vikings, this probably comes from a Norwegian word, Jalsbjörg, which means hooded. So it's very typical in the 11th century that the coif, the headgear part of the hoberg is integral, is actually part of the whole coat.
1: And I can tell from your left arm there, as you hold up the hood, that it's quite a struggle to hold on to it because it's you know it's really heavy how much does it
2: weigh um i haven't actually weighed this one it's about 15 kilos i know that when i get in my when i'm in my street clothes i'm around 11 and a half stone when i put all of my gear on i'm going to go up to 13 and a half stone generally armor will increase your body weight by around 30 percent any more than that and it's going to be pretty much a deficit to your performance but um, that that works pretty well
1: now, in terms of the scene, we've described how you'll make various charges, like the waves lashing on the shore, as you've described. Is there also a, a PA system? Is there a commentator? And how does everyone know what their cue is and what their role is?
2: Well, we're lucky to have Mark Selwood, who's a very gifted commentator and a great storyteller, and he will be reading the script um, of the Battle of Hastings, if you like, telling the story as the battle progresses. But as well as doing that, that is also augmented by pre-recorded audio tracks of various characters in the battle, which adds a sort of dramatic emphasis to the thing. On top of that, Mark also is in radio communication with commanders on the field to actually coordinate and direct the action.
1: And on this occasion, you will be one of the commanders for the Normans.
2: Yes, usually. you'll, You'll be getting radio messages about what to do when. Yes, exactly. Between each piece of action, we'll get a contact from Mark, which will say, OK, this is what's coming up next. Are you ready? We'll just confirm that we are, that our understanding is correct, and we'll go. And, uh, and I have to say that the cavalry is always right. For the guys on the ground, they are simply free-forming. They're following the commands, which for the Normans will be go up the hill and hit the Saxons, and they will simply riff on that. They're just fighting within a close set of combat rules, and they will just freeform fight. So we can't direct every piece of action on the field. We're very fortunate that we, we use here the, the best quality reenactment societies in, available. And they are more similar than they are different in terms of their combat uh, techniques and so on and regimes. So there's a really good spirit of cooperation and compromise in terms of creating a fighting style for Hastings that we can all get on with and keep everybody safe with.
1: And in this case, um, with it sort of being free form, freestyle, anyone can die and anyone can f- sort of flee, I suppose.
2: Yes, exactly, and uh, frankly, I, can, I, I suspect that an awful lot of the people who die towards the end of the battle are just exhausted and don't want to get up again, and that's a pretty good reason. It depends for each, each person on the field how immersed they are in the moment, but you will get guys who say, do you know what, I'm just going to run off at this point just to add some realism to it, and, um, and that's all good. You do also get the guys who are determined never to die, but um, we can usually persuade them. But how do you make it all safe? That is one of the miracles of reenactment in this period because particularly early medieval reenactment, it is a contact sport. So we are using weapons of the same weight, they're just blunted. We all have spears but they are blunted and yet somehow we managed to put a thousand people on the field with fewer injuries than you would get at a school rugby match. So it really is astonishing, never fails to astonish me, half my life I've been doing this and I'm always amazed and impressed by the care that the reenactors have towards each other for their safety. That's where it really comes down to though, because we all know that these weapons are dangerous and so we treat them with care and respect and for that reason I think that's how we keep people safe.
1: What does the crowd get out of it obviously? Um, also do they learn historically from the reenactment?
2: I think, you know, this is one of those dates that every schoolboy's supposed to know, you know, and we can be very blasé about the Battle of Hastings and the Norman Conquest. And actually, if, if crowds come to this show, they will get a very good overview of the history of the Battle of Hastings and a largely quite objective one as well. And they will see this extraordinary event and it really almost is a clash of cultures, the, the Normans being the new boys in town, you know, they are very much the poster boys for the Pope, which is why they've got the papal banner, they are using military tactics and they're up against the Saxons who are using old school Germanic shield ball tactics and it's, it really is something of a culture clash and an extraordinary thing to see. I think what it does quite simply is it brings this phenomenal day in English history to life. <laughs>
1: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. If you'd like to find out more about seeing the Battle of Hastings reenacted or any other historical reenactments, just visit the English Heritage website. We're back next week. Until then, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
0: Hello, this is Josie Long, here to tell you about Speaking with Shadows, a podcast series from English Heritage presented by me with the help of researchers and local community members i'll bring you six stories from history that we should all be talking about subscribe to speaking with shadows the podcast that listens to the people that history forgot and get every episode delivered to your podcast feed for free i can't wait for you to hear this show